Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for for supporting us on Patreon.com. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Weekly Mormon News Roundup, where Al, John Hamer, and D. Bays are going to ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. This week is March 12th of 2023, episode 50. Uh, our 50th episode. This is a big one. So uh, welcome to John Hamer. He's co-hosting with us this week. He's, uh, let's see, we have some really interesting news this week. Uh, from the Community of Christ, President VZ is going to step down. Um, the LDS missionary slang is also in the hot seat. And why paying tithing isn't just for Mormons. So this is a this is a juicy week. Uh, we're glad to have um, Dives and John. And now, am I pronouncing your name right, uh, John Hamer? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored to be here on your 50th episode. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, it's great to have you. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at mormonnewsroundup.org, or you can send us an email to kolob at mormonnewsroundup.org. That's K-O-L-O-B. Now, uh, John, who are you, and uh, what is your religious background? Um, I am the pastor of the Community of Christ Toronto Congregation and also of our Beyond the Walls global kind of online ministry, which is the church's uh, largest online ministry. Community of Christ, people will know maybe in the Utah Church as the former reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or RLDS Church. Uh, I serve as the as a in the priesthood calling of 70 in that denomination. In terms of background, I was born and raised in the Utah tradition as a mission field Mormon. I grew up in Minnesota, but ultimately uh, left the church over as a teenager over the issues of uh, priesthood ordination for women, sexism in the church and that sort of thing. Um, Uh, and was mostly an unchurched person for most of my adult life until uh, joining Community of Christ uh, as a 40-year-old. Wow, this is quite the story you've got. So so you converted to the Community of Christ in your 40s? Well, just barely 40, yes. (laughs) Okay, Okay, when you were just barely 40. uh, April 6th, uh, 2010, which is uh-huh. Four days after my birthday. <laughs> okay. Wow, that's a very, very special date as well that you picked as well. Uh, you really make the rounds, uh, John, on the Community of Christ Mormon YouTube podcasting circuit. What, is, what draws you to the space? Well, um, so I have a lot of background in, in history and also uh, as a teacher and a communicator. And when one is doing, let's say, academic research, and if you want to publish an article in one of the wonderful Mormon history or Mormon culture journals that we have, like Dialogue and the Journal of Mormon Studies, Mormon Historic Sites, the John Whitmer Historical Association. The reality is that you are really going to reach an audience of a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand if we're if we're being generous <laughs> with how many people are going to read the article. Uh, whereas the reality, you know, if we are communicating through media like podcasts, through YouTube and so forth, we're able to uh, get ideas spread more broadly. Um, you know, my top uh, lecture videos that I've given on YouTube have over 400,000 views. And so that obviously is reaching a lot more people than I could through just, let's say, a a narrow academic frame. Yeah, for sure. Now, it seems like your expertise is in map making and the so-called succession crisis. Uh, Is that right? How did you gain that expertise? Do I have that right? 
Well, those are some of my fields, yeah. So um, in terms of map making, um, there's a couple things. So I did actually study uh, as a graduate student uh, medieval European history with a focus on medieval and ancient map making and things like that. So I'm actually a rare one of the, there's very few experts on this in the world. So it's a very small field. So but I'm, I'm one of the more, I'd say dozen or two dozen people who knows a lot about that particular topic. But also at the same time, um, as computer aided, uh, publishing, desktop publishing was being created when I was, and it was started when I was a teenager in high school on the, on my high school newspaper. Um, uh, I got, I've always been interested in publishing and I went to down that kind of career path and I pioneered um, some of the map making for academic presses. And so I have, have maps that have been published with, with the Smithsonian, with uh, the Oxford University Press and Columbia and a bunch of other you know, university presses, the Joseph Smith Papers Project and so forth. So that became, um, how did I do that? I just was interested in maps. I love maps from an early age and I was there at a very early time. And so I've been doing that for a long time. In terms of the uh, succession crisis, uh, this is just something that's always intrigued me. And so I have always been very interested in all of the smaller Latter-day Saint tradition churches. And um, and so how do I, I um, generate expertise by reading, you know, the, all of the books of the New Mormon history and then ultimately talking to lots and lots of individuals and reading, you know, books in, in, the, in some of the different traditions, the all manner of ites, as we sometimes say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I run a YouTube channel, John, that's called Mormon Movie Reviews, and we have 85 episodes. I just reviewed a, a, a film that's called In Emma's Footsteps, which traces Emma's life from the martyrdom until the end of her life. Unfortunately, it was blocked on YouTube, and I have to redo it so it doesn't have as many moving images. But have you ever oh. seen that film, In Emma's Footsteps? It's put together by the um, the Joseph Smith and Emma Hale Smith uh, Historical Society. Have you ever caught that one? I have not watched it. So well, I then, uh, well, if I get that review, I'll send it to you, and you can take a look at it, because I think that would be right in your wheel well. It's a very interesting film, especially since it's from a Brickhamite Branch-focused look at Emma. It's very interesting um, what it is that they covered and the and things that they didn't cover. Now, is there anything else about your personal life or religious beliefs that you would like to share with us before we get started? Um, so I guess the main thing is that I do have kind of a unique placement within the movement, because I'm someone who's very committed to the Latter-day Saint tradition, and I'm obviously... Um, uh, involved also religiously, although the experience of Community of Christ as a um, progressive church is so different from the Utah LDS tradition in terms of, let's say, focus on literalism and things like that, that it's um, that being really committed to religion is, some, is, is a fairly different space than uh, with not as much overlap. So I don't know. It's hard to describe it all in a, in a shorthand or a thumbnail, but I'll just I guess I'll throw that out there. <laughs> OK, yeah, uh, well said. So um, I have one quick question before we uh, get into the news here. Uh, so, John, uh, why the community of Christ? What is it that uh, drew you to them? Um, well, I, in fact, um, like I say, I had not been interested or involved in any religion. I had just kind of gone off into academics and was focused on on that sort of a thing. And it was really only in doing my own um, kind of family history and family heritage and actually learning about uh, ancestors who uh, both were, you know, joined the movement back in 1832 and so forth. In other words, where my, my personal family story is also the Latter-day Saint history story. And then the kind of the connections and things that had been edited out as far as I'd never been told. So um, uh, all of the connections that my ancestors had with 
the Whitmerites or becoming Whitmerites and becoming like one of the one of the members of the family when it split apart in 1844 went off and became a Rigdonite apostle and so forth. I you know I didn't learn anything like that kind of thing growing up. Um, anyway, I, I went off and exploring all of that, and in the course of doing that, I fairly quickly uh, came into contact with uh, members of the Latter Day Saint historians community who are from Community of Christ. And largely, um, as they were telling me about their church and where it had gone and all of the trans changes that it had made and, the, and, you know, well, you don't have to believe this this way to be part of this church or, and that kind of thing. All of my assumptions uh, about what a church was, you know, weren't borne out by what they were saying. And over time, I, you know, I, I, I started to believe them. I started to look at it and see how it was actually lived. And when I really, um, you know, began to experience it from that perspective, um, I became a serious investigator myself, and I kind of looked back into my into my past. I realized as a like as a kid growing up Mormon, I'd read the Book of Mormon multiple times and things like that with my family and on my own and so forth. But I hadn't ever even read straight through. I mean, I read a bunch of the Old Testament, but I'd never read straight through even one of the Gospels. You know, <laughs> and so um, I said, look, if I'm going to be serious about this, I mean, I love the community, I love what it stands for, and things like that. But if I'm going to be involved, I'm going to have to, um, you know, find out. What Christianity is all about, you know. What, what, yeah. you know, what does this really mean? And so I picked up, uh, you know, I think, oh, I'm named John. I'll, I'll read the Gospel of John. <laughs> you know, there's four of them. That sounds like a good one to start with. Uh, and I was pretty fed up with it right from the start, right out of the gate, because it is. Um, I had a background as a historian of reading narrative historically, and the Gospel of John, you know, it more or less has nothing. Nothing in it is historical. Nothing in it describes how the historical Jesus would have uh, been. It is a written in a later era by Christians who are writing from a perspective of their understanding, their theological understanding of a God Jesus and how he would have acted from their perspective. And so, like I say, when I first started with this thing, I was like, you know, I took it, I literally threw it on the floor and said, ah, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. And it was only after, you know, um, lots more study, uh, you know, and many more years of, of, of thought, uh, you know, and reflection and spiritual practice prayer um, that, caused me to say, look, I'm, I'm feeling called to be a part of this community. All right. Yeah, well said. Um, yeah, I, this is a real treat for us, especially for our 50th episode, because um, very early on we had to uh, define that Mormonism uh, really uh, encapsulates anybody who follows uh, the teachings that originated with Joseph Smith. And so uh, to have a perspective from the community of Christ, uh, kind of a, a sister church to the, um, the uh, Brighamite sect, uh, this is uh, a real uh, honor to have you with us. Very, or you're very welcome here, John. Well, thank yes. you so very much. And let's see how welcome you really are by giving us a Mormon News Roundup joke of the week. Let's not put the cart before the horse because the jury is still out. So I understand, John, that you yeah. do have the Mormon joke of the week for yes. us. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see if you guys like this or not. I'm not much of a joke teller. So, <laughs> so, so, and whether or not you think this is a joke. Um, so a Mormon joke to me anyway, that is central to my life experience is that liberal Mormons often tell me, hey, I want a church with women's ordination, with LGBT acceptance, where Latter-day Saints aren't correlated, where being non-credal means you can explore your beliefs without the threat of discipline, where you can read the Book of Mormon as an allegory. I want a church that's more honest about Joseph Smith and our history and more focused on helping others than obeying leaders. And I say to them, okay, check, check, check. Okay, I got all that for you. And the joke is, I guess, oh, just kidding. We don't really want all that. We just wanted to complain. 
<laughs> that is very well, true. Well done, John. <laughs> that, is, that is so true. That is so true. That is very, very funny stuff. Good stuff. Okay, glad to have you on here, John. Now, our first news article here is Community of Christ, a private president to retire. State President Stephen M. Beasy announced Monday, March 6th, that he plans to retire effective with a scheduled world conference in early June 2025. He has served as the prophet president of the Community of Christ since June of 2005, and he's turning 66 soon. So, hey, can you walk us through what's happening with the news here with President Beasy, John? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so President Beasy, as you say, is the um, the prophet president of the church and has been so, you know, now you say for two decades. Um, and it is very normal at this point in um, and expected in community of Christ practice uh, that the prophet president will serve a term, you know, which is not, it's an open-ended term at the present. Uh, but that at a certain point, uh, when they feel like uh, you know they're getting on in age, or when they've made their contribution, and they feel that God is calling someone else to be uh, you know the prophet and president of the church, that they will announce uh, a schedule for for their retirement. Um, that has been occurring since the 70s. So pre- previously, uh, the presidents have lived until they died, and and uh, and it's rather than step down. But in the 70s. Uh, President W. Wallace Smith, who um, was in fact just a, one of the grandsons of Joseph Smith Jr., um, uh, uh, announced that he was going to step down. His son uh, Wallace B. Smith became president designate at that time, um, and there was a couple-year pr- process where uh, you know where that overlapped. Then uh, uh, W. Wallace Smith retired and became the prophet emeritus of the church, uh, which was a position that he held until his death. His son, uh, who then became uh, the prophet and president of the church, Wallace B. Smith, he continued to have that until his his retirement. He named as his successor W. Grant McMurray. Um, he continues to be the um, uh, Wallace B. Smith is alive to this day, and he continues to be the prophet emeritus of the church. Um, Grant McMurray uh, uh, left the church presidency, and uh, in like you say, early early two thousands, and and Steve Beasy has been president and prophet since then. Now, it seems like President B.C. is uh, really seems uh, to me that he's beloved both within and without the faith. And uh, he released a personal statement that went along with this. I'd like to highlight and discuss a few uh, aspects of this p- particular statement. Yeah. And Al, do you, ha- do you have that uh, first uh, s- uh, section of, the, of uh, President B.C.'s statement about his retiring? Yeah, where it says, I believe. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. He says, I believe my decision to retire is timely for me and my family. I find this to be a very interesting phrasing because it makes it sound like this is a very personal decision. And I find it remarkable that he does not trot out the capital R revelation word, which um, it seems like that comes out of Salt Lake a lot. He, he doesn't say that it was a revelation. He just says that it's a personal. It seems like he makes it to be a personal decision. Yeah. Any and, thoughts and on that? I really like that uh, personally. I, he takes this attitude of, well, I can make my own decisions for myself. I don't need to you know, have an act of Congress or rather an act of God to um to make a decision like this i think it's very appropriate and very mature this is uh this is uh I, i'm really impressed with this so our understanding in community of christ of of prof, the role of prophet and also uh, in scripture too is that um god doesn't actually speak with human words that rather um you know god's inspiration is open to us all and when we have a a, a prophet an evangelist whoever is composing uh, revelation that the human person they're writing human words in the response to the divine right and so and so there is no dictaphone where god is picking up the phone and the prophet in salt lake or in independence missouri or the pope in rome is getting you know word for word what god is saying and so the 
prophets of the church who have the calling of bringing inspired counsel or revelation to the church for consideration by the World Conference. Um, they have been pretty open the last couple decades in, in how that discernment process works, how they um, wrestle over words, how they, uh, it doesn't just, you know, how, how things um, kind of slowly take place in their mind and so forth when before they present it to us. And so that is a discernment that we're all called to do in the church as recent sections of the Doctrine and Covenants talk about us becoming a prophetic people. So for us, we can say continuing revelation is one of the enduring principles of the restored gospel that we're all supposed to participate in. Well, thanks a lot, John. Now, uh, do you have that next section for us, Al, from this yeah. sta uh, statement? The will create opportunities for younger world church leaders to share their gifts more extensively, which will bless the church. Now, I do find that interesting because, you know, with the secularization of the United States, the rise of the so-called uh, religious nuns, uh, young persons in particular crave uh, youthful leadership. You know, that's one reason that, for instance, Nancy Pelosi uh, stepped down as Speaker of the House after 20 years is because she really realized that she's a little bit too old. And it seems like he is uh, emphasizing that uh, youth perspective, um, which I think has a, a broad, a broad appeal. Well, and I think that it also, um, it also, I think, is pro proves dynamically in a in institutions um, to to have a major effect. Because I do think that one of the reasons why the two churches uh, in the 1960s, when both churches were um, were presented with the evidence, for example, of the new Mormon history and all these sorts of things that each church kind of took completely different courses. Right. And so yeah. the uh, LDS church kind of decided, well, deny, deny, you know, let's not, uh, you know, not listen to what all of the evidence is saying. Let's double down on narrative and this kind of thing. Whereas the our LDS leaders largely said, well, we're going to listen to, you know, what, you know, the experts are telling us and, and just understand uh, within understand our faith within reality right and so and so and so as a result of that which has been a hard hard road to uh, hoe but yeah. on the other hand uh, i think it's in part because the leaders were so much you know a whole generation or two younger uh in community of christ in the 1960s than even lds leaders were at the time because of the lds um succession process you know so the, yeah. the way the seniority process works in the in the in the senior leadership, two, two leadership forums in the LDS church as opposed to Community of Christ. Uh, I guess that's to say that the uh, RLDS had a, um, a younger, more um, adaptable uh, clergy leading them, uh, whereas the LDS uh, sect uh, was a bunch of old curmudgeons who were too set in their ways to change. Huh? <laughs> well, I mean, that would be the shorthand, right? I mean, I think sure. in terms of why, why thumbnail of why that maybe happened. So the RLDS yeah. church from the very beginning, so has maintained the original church's mm -hmm. difference. The first presidency is not just an extension of the council or quorum of 12. Those yeah. are totally different councils. Mm -hmm. And uh, from the beginning, um, the RLDS apostles have always retired. You know, So in other words, it's a job that you have or a calling that you have um, uh, in a lot of cases, fairly young, but, you know, into kind of like a regular retirement age usually. And, and that's been kind of a tradition since the 1860s. And um, like I say, there has been since the 70s anyway, a, 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 the same precedent for the, the president and prophet of the church as well. Uh, I think for all but just a handful of years in the 19 teens, the LDS prophet has always been uh, older than the RLDS mm -hmm. prophet. And this is one time when, when Joseph 
F. Smith was president of the Utah Church, and his cousin, Joseph III, was president of the RLDS Church, and he'd been president for 50 years, and so suddenly he really was old, you know, you know, <laughs> you know but, but in general, in general, um, it, it, the, it's usually, I mean, somewhere in the range of 40 years younger, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the presidency. Sure. Yeah. Hey, um, so Al, can you read that one last uh, section from uh, President Vizi's statement here? I just want to discuss that, and we'll wrap yeah. this uh, particular article up. Certainly. It says, announcing my retirement at this time will facilitate an orderly leadership transition. Right. So announcing um, a retirement in this fashion means there's no church leadership vacuum. You know, it means that you don't have to put up with geriatric and mentally incapacitated leadership for years and years on end. And it also means that members can take an active part in the governance of the faith. Now, if you read the statement itself, President Vesey has a four phase transition plan, which will is supposed to ensure a smooth uh, leadership transition. And I have to tell you, John, that I'm quite jealous of that. I mean, it seriously sounds very inspired to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, and and I we're getting in, still engaging in it, right? So this just barely yeah. happened. So mm -hmm. so we have not had one fixed way uh, for succession in Community of Christ. And so um, in general, each of the different presidents has has they're the, they're the prophet, mm -hmm. and so yeah. they also bring new stuff, right? It doesn't only go back to Joseph Smith. There are new. Yeah. continually added new sections of our Doctrine and Covenants as, as prophets bring inspired counsel to the World Conference, the World Conference can canonize it, and so on and so forth. And so actually, um, there's always changes. And mm -hmm. so this is a, you know, the, ever since the 70s, like I say, there's been these orderly transitions where there's an announcement made that there's going to be a retirement and uh, mm -hmm. we get some time to adjust and so forth. Yeah, th this is really uh, inspiring. To, well, yeah, inspiring is a great word for it, but um, these uh, prophets uh, eat, as a as a living breathing uh, voice uh, or mouthpiece for for the Lord, um, each of them gets their own revelation um, about how the transition will be from them uh, to the next. So I I really like that, and I I gotta say um, I don't know where else to put this in this here, but I do want to say it seems really noteworthy that President Vizi is younger than anybody in the Quorum of Twelve Apostles in the LDS Church out of Salt Lake. So right, uh, I to, mean, for, for him to say, okay, it's, it's time for me to retire, that's really striking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, David Bednar was one of the youngest uh, ordained uh, apostles mm -hmm. in the LDS tradition, and he was, I believe, 16, uh, not, you know, I don't know the exact date on that, mm -hmm. but he was one of the youngest, but we usually don't. Yeah. President Vizi was the prophet of president when he was 45 years old. We usually, mm -hmm. we don't even get apostles when you're 45, much less the president of the church. Yeah, right? exactly. Because it takes 40 years on average. It took Russell and Nelson, I believe, 39 years to attain to the head. It takes 40 years on average just to get to the head of it. And if you don't ordain people until they're in their late 40s, at a minimum, maybe 50s, you can see that the age here that we're talking about is very, very old. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And just one other thing, John. I, you know, when I read about the statement, this is the last thing on the statement. He talks a lot about discernment. And I get the impression that in the community of Christ, the concept of discernment is different from the uh, Mormon one. Is that is that just me reading into it, or? Well, it definitely. So you'd have to tell me what the definition. I would, my presumption of the Mormon one is that that discernment means obeying leaders. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the. You know, you have to tell me what it is. Oh well, that's a good, yeah, maybe that was a bad question. A discernment in the LDS tradition is kind of like um, I don't know that your bishop has discernment, so he knows what's best for you. It, you know, it's kind of oh. like you know he, he has the ability to give you a calling, or your stake president. You know, he prays about you and realizes that. You know, you lost your job, but you never told anybody. So he has discernment, so he knows to come and check on you. That's kind of like yeah. what discernment is in the uh, obvious yeah. tradition. Yeah, almost like intuition. Yeah, like an intuition. Yeah, so no, it wouldn't be intuition. So discernment and community of Christ, you know, would be like the process, like, um, like that Joseph Smith is trying to explain to Oliver Cowdery about how to 
um, dictate Book of Mormon text or whatever. You're studying it out in your mind. You know, you're you are um, you're going to be pondering things. You're going to pray about things. You have a spiritual practice. You know, you are um, so uh, you have dialogue with others. You should be reading and studying. So you know, there, these are um, the ways that we are kind of contemplating path forward kinds of things. And discernment is part of a community based, let's say, revelatory process that we kind of engage in at every level. So my congregation um, went through what we call the discernment process when we were, um, you know, we had, had decided we had to sell our old building that we'd been in for 80 years that was oversized and had all these problems. And what did, what, what was the path ahead? We, you know, we were asking, how is God calling us to be a community of Christ in downtown Toronto in, in the 21st century? And so, uh, you know, we engaged in workshops, you know, where we where we asked our members what matters most individually and we shared ideas and so forth. It was a, um, you know, a year long process that resulted in uh, a plan going forward, you know, and so forth. Okay, very well. Well, thank you very much for covering this concept about uh, President VZ. We'll be looking forward to uh, seeing what's going to happen there in the World yeah. Conference, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But before we do, we have a Mormon News Roundup poll of the week, which goes along with this. And if you come on over to Anchor or Spotify, you can interact with us on our poll of the week. And uh, what is the Mormon News Roundup poll of the week for episode 50? Yeah. Okay. So the poll this week is why doesn't the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have a better prophetic leadership transition process? That is a good question. And John, uh, we're going to give you a couple of options here. We want you to be the first person to take our poll, which, by the way, do not take this poll too seriously. But <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's give you a couple options here and let's see why don't you think that uh, your sister, uh, uh, your sister religion has a better prophetic transition process? Is it number is it number one? Because Brigham Young's uber-inspired transition process based on apostolic ordination date has been working so well. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be. Maybe that's the reason. I'll, I don't know. I'm not be. too sure. I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. I don't know how well that is working, actually, now that you mentioned it. Or, um, but I don't want to poison the well. You, it could be. You, you can always okay, there could be another. One. There's more options, right? Yeah, number two. Because Mormons never had anyone as handsome as Joseph Smith III at the helm. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is that there's a lot to say for that. I, I seriously think if you lined up all of the prophets for both of for FLDS, LDS, RLDS, you line up all the prophets, Joseph Smith, the third, he's going to come out on top on that one. I, I think that that is without question. He was quite dashing. <laughs> and, and by the way, his his um, he had this sporting this, you know, in, the, in post uh, Civil War era in the United States, uh, all the guys, all the veterans there, he wasn't a veteran, but anyway, all these guys, the style was for these crazy beards, right? And yeah. that has now finally come back around in style. So Joseph III <laughs> is just such a styling <laughs> style. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Or is it number three? How about your third choice there? Bottom line, Orison Hyde was a wicked and a slothful servant. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the reason. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in right now. Serious, it all seriously goes back down to him. If he hadn't been a wicked and a slothful servant, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in right now, honestly. Seriously. Yes. Uh, or, or is it maybe it's number four? Because white, zany, dementia-stricken geriatrics are unpredictable and fun. They are unpredictable. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. You never know what's going to happen next. Are we, are we no longer going to be Mormons anymore? We're going to now call, call it the Tabernacle Choir of the Temple Square or something. It's because we can't say the word Mormon. <laughs> right. So it, it, is, it does add a level of unpredictability and right. a lot. Of, it's very zany. But I'm not sure if it's great for a good leadership. We'll just put it that way. Or five, how about number five? Because cisgender Utah-born silver foxes appeal so well to Generation Z and millennials. <laughs> yeah, they really do, don't they, Al? <laughs> yeah, or, I guess, actually, uh, 
I, not, I, I don't know. <laughs> not so much. Not so much. Probably I not. I find that it's like it's. You, you, I always relate so closely to like the childhood experiences of growing up in the depression in Utah. You know, you yeah. depression here in Utah. I mean, it just yeah. relates to my daily life as a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or fight. We'll give you one final choice here. Number six, uh, John. Is it number After six? After Brigham Young transfigured into Joseph Smith Jr. in August 1844, there is no going back. Maybe. No, that's it. That's pretty much it. Okay, so you got six choices there. Why? Uh, why do you think, John, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints doesn't have a better prophetic leadership transition process? I, I'm going to go back to number one. It's because this whole transition thing that Brigham Young worked out has just been going working yeah, so well. Okay. Can't argue with success. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So Very nice. Certainly works out for the one who's at the top, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it does. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Now, uh, the uh, the church, the Community of Christ World Conference, it differs obviously from General Conference in a number of ways, and I believe it only takes place every three years. And you're expecting a lot of news to come out. Can you t- tell us what you're expecting here, John, from the World Conference, which is coming up? Right. So back in the days of the early church, it was every you know six months, and that was also true at the beginning of the organization. But it slowly became annual, and then biennial, and now every three years, as you say. Um, and it's because we conduct so much as a as a conference that it's a lot of work to get delegates from all around the world to come to it, and so forth, and to get legislation prepared. So um, so there's nothing. No, no overlap anymore between the two traditions. <laughs> so, so nothing like happens in the LDS General Conference happens in what we now call World Conference and Community of Christ. So, World Conference is a is a legislature. It's essentially like the Parliament or the World Parliament or the Congress of uh, of the Church, and it is essentially the supreme um, sovereign or you know body of the Church. It is it represents the Church, and so the Church is a theo democracy. It's a democracy where um, our congregations, like my congregation, elects delegates, which go to the regional conference. The regional conference elects delegates, which are sent to the world conference. My congregation also, uh, you know, not only has legislation for itself, in other words, its own budget, its own policies and everything, or not policies, but um, its own priorities, mission priorities and so forth. We also send uh, and refer legislation that our members write to the regional conference, which if approved, then can be sent to the World Conference uh, and and then can become legislation for the whole church if it's uh, becomes a resolution that is enacted by the World Conference. And so uh, and so essentially we're going to be just looking at all the legislation that everything went through. One of my congregation did send a resolution that's going to be up for consideration and a bunch of others are up for consideration. Um, the World Conference is also, for example, in charge of the canon of scripture. So we can add things to the canon and we can take things out. And so one of the things that's before us is, do we want to decanonize a a section from the Doctrine and Covenants? Uh, One of the mission centers, a regional uh, assembly, has set legislation for us to consider uh, decanonizing a section. Um, And we'll also, of course, I'm sure, be talking about uh, the proposed (coughs) discernment process that you're talking about uh, with Steve Easy. In other words, as we are considering as a body, the World Conference, um, you know, the next calling of the next prophet president. So all of those things will be in front of us. And so I'm going to, I've been elected as one of the delegates. And so I'm going to go to world conference and um, there's several other members of our congregation that are going um, and the Canadian mission centers where I'm from. Uh, and then there'll be, we'll be joined by delegates from all around the world. Now, how does the, John, how does the co- uh, concept of common consent, which of course goes all the way back to the articles and covenants of the church, right. which is in our modern day doctrine and covenant section 20, and also more elucidated in our doctrine and covenant section 26, 
how does that operate in the community of Christ? And how does that uh, differ from the way it is currently practiced in the LDS church? Because it, it, originally in um, 1830, the law of common consent, um, it was only males who were voting, for instance. So oh, yeah. how does it work for the community of Christ and how does it differ from the LDS tradition? Yeah, so in so all members, you know, so everything is done in the church by common consent. We have the same sections that are the same operative sections in the doctrine, our doctrine and covenants as you have in yours. Um, and so we take that very seriously. Um, uh, all of the all of the members of the congregation who are so you have to be eight to be a member. But once you are eight and you're a member, you have voice and vote in a congregation conference, a congregation mm -hmm. business meeting. Um, we are legally obliged to have a congregation business meeting. Uh, we're a legally incorporated charity in Canada. We um, have to have one every every year. Uh, we often have more because we we want to consider legislation or programs or anything that anybody wants to have. Um, uh, essentially, um, I'm serve as a pastor of the congregation, but I'm not I have not been appointed by some authority above uh, the congregation. Uh, the congregation elects the pastor uh, based on who they believe uh, God is calling to be the pastor of the congregation this year. Um, and I also serve essentially at the at the will of the of the conference. And so, you know, the, the congregation, the business meeting. So so people can demand that we have another business meeting and recall me, you know, essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that works all the way up. Right. So, uh, uh, like I said, we we elect our delegates to the, the regional conference in Canada and then send legislation and so forth up to World Conference. Yeah. And, and can you put your prophesy hat on? Um, what what kind of news do you expect to see from the World Conference? What what what, what kind of news are, are you expecting to see? I, I think that there's going to be, I mean, now that we now that we have the retirement announcement, I think there's going to be a lot of focus on on that and and exactly how are we, um, you know, discerning the way forward. We're trying not to um, just immediately jump to who's it going to be, who's it going to be, you know, kind of thing, yeah. but rather, um, you know. What are the needs and challenges that the church is facing going forward? How how can we best uh, respond to that? What are sorts of some of the skill sets? Uh, what are you know uh, that that are needed, or what you know in general what uh, the direction of the church? So I think that there's going to be a lot of reflective, um, a lot of reflection like that, and there's also going to inevitably be you know some look backs on on. Uh, Steve Easy's administration, which is not over because it's another two years, but anyway, we're going to now be starting to think of those kinds of legacy issues. How has that been defined? Um, you've probably heard <clears throat> about because we are very transparent in our finances. You probably heard that the, you know the community price you know has has had some financial struggles since the last financial meltdown in the, glo the globally and, and so on. Um, and so that happened on on Steve Easy's watch, as it were. Um, and we've taken lots of ex kind of extraordinary measures as a church in order to live within our financial means and get on, back on track and things like that. And that is also supposed that entire plan needs is supposed to have been on track to be fixed by this this world conference. And so we'll probably hear, um, you know, a status on that, which it should be pretty good news. And so in other words, uh, that second half of, of Steve's administration, you know, in a way, you know, brings closure on the first half in that sense. Um, and so then what now, what are we doing going forward, maybe outside of, you know, uh, of crisis? What are some of the missional opportunities that we have in front of us? Yeah, this is a really interesting process. Uh, it, it does uh, resonate with uh, exactly the way it's laid out in the Doctrine and Covenants. So I'm really impressed by that. The, the voice of the Lord is heard um, through the, uh, the rumblings of the Spirit within each individual member and then democratically moving its way up uh, into... Uh, or through the delegates to this uh, 
to, to this conference where uh, the voice of the Lord comes through all the delegates together to come out with uh, what the democratically um, preferred outcome is. Is that correct? Yeah. And so, and so we also have to be cautious. You know, that's why we use this word discernment all the time, because, you know, d democracy can also lead to tyranny. Right. And so, if, you know, you can get in a place where there's a popular idea that yeah. uh, creates injustice for a minority. Mm -hmm. And so um, and so we do need to be very thoughtful as we are exercising that, that it's not simply, oh, this is what you know, this is a popular idea that we want to do. But rather, everybody needs to take that calling to be individually a prophetic people very, you know, as seriously as, you know, the, the leaders do, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about financial difficulties within the community of Christ. And I did read that there is a, a shortfall in, in your pension um, for your retiring employees for profits and things like that. I believe it was supposed to be around 125 million and it's only sitting at like 90 million. There's a small shortfall. Do I have those numbers right? So I'm not a great numbers guy, so I can't tell okay. you what the numbers are. But yeah, there, that's the that's the issue. So yeah. as of the um, as of the financial cri the last financial crisis with the mortgages and everything like that over 10 years ago, um, there was a, sh a shortfall created in the pension plan. They did not want to write down everybody's pensions. So these are these are folks who devoted their lives to church service. Um, you know, we as a church made a commitment. You know, and so mm -hmm. we've been we've been working on you know. Tight belt tightening and other kinds of ways to uh, raise funds in order to pay that all down. That's been a plan that has been called the Bridge of Hope plan that we've been doing ever since that time. And that is scheduled to be all resolved this year. So I think that we have been on track with that. I don't have the most, the latest details. I'm sure that will be, again, I actually think it's probably been published and I haven't looked closely enough recently, but it's supposed to be time for this conference. Yeah, I, I believe I read that about six months ago when I was looking at that, some community of Christ uh, auditing. Um, and I believe that there's that shortfall. But we did, John, yeah. we did buy the Book of Mormon for, for from you for $30 million. I thought that would have helped out. You know what I mean? It uh, $30 million goes a long way because I thought the community of Christ operating budget is something like $15 million, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It definitely helped out because um, ultimately we decided as a church – um, that this particular artifact, while uh, very valuable to us and important to our heritage and so forth, that it was more important to be able to make good on the promise that we'd made to to members who would sacrifice their whole lives for this, and that we didn't want to have a have them lose lose everything in retirement and so forth. So to pay to pay down their pension. Now, how much for the uh, Book of Mormon characters document, John? Because that's next up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is that's next up. How much for that one? I don't know, but it, but actually, I think that the Book of Mormon manuscript uh, sold for much less than it was worth, even though at the time it was the uh, most expensive uh, that anybody had paid for any manuscript ever in history. Uh, mm -hmm. Nevertheless, um, the way the way documents are valued, it's yeah. um, it's it's based on what the buyers want, and the Mormon. Um, documents market is just so crazy because there's so many ultra rich Mormons, billion billionaires and so forth yeah. who would really want, you know, lots of different documents. So I do think that that um, the document was way undersold. But I uh, nevertheless, I'm also happy that in going to the LDS church, um, the Joseph Smith Papers Project is so uh, has been so good at preserving documents. Um, you know, one of the things that happens when you go to private collectors is that, you know, things get off into you know, you might take a manuscript like that and, and sell each individual page because a millionaire will pay, you know, each individual millionaire will pay a lot of money for it. And so mm -hmm. it, it got to be preserved in a way that it can be studied and everybody can buy a transcript and actually a full facsimile of it now. So it's not like it's hidden in a vault that no one will ever see it. It's, it's in a very, it's in good yeah. hands. 
Well, not yeah. not to mention uh, that it will be preserved uh, in the yeah. archives uh, because, like, like the Vatican archives is an excellent example of uh, you have a, an organization that's so wealthy it can afford to you know have a vacuumed uh, out room where that keeps even air off of these documents, let alone light that's and right. all that. Something that a, a millionaire can't afford to have that kind of a system, regardless. <laughs> but a multi-billion-dollar uh, corporation for sure can. Uh, have an archive like that, so it, they, they will be preserved for generations to come. Absolutely. Now, for those listeners out there, um, if you if you find any news articles that you want us to cover in our next podcast, if you come on over to Twitter, you can drop a, those links to us. We're at, at @newsmormon. Let us know what articles you want us to cover for our next podcast, and we might be able to work them in. Now, uh, John, I'd be remiss if we didn't get your thoughts about the LDS Church and the Ensign Peak uh, Advisors SC Security and Exchange Commission fine which just took place two, uh, two weeks ago in which the church was fined a million dollars and Ensign Peak Advisors was fined $4 million. Could you give us some of your thoughts on that? Um, so having read the different articles, and I saw that when it first came out in the Washington Post and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, and it does seem like, you know, there was pretty clear wrongdoing. And so the um, fine is very appropriate, it seems like. So I, I, I think that, um, um, as I think they indicated, if it was a for-profit corporation or officially for-profit corporation, they would have been fined a lot more, um, mm-hmm. but uh, they've been put on notice for, for wrongdoing and having done that. And so I think that that seems like, you know, an appropriate response. Okay. Um, what do you think has been the reaction to that fine in the greater community of Christ community? Um, I think community of Christ members are very aware that our cousins are like crazy rich, <laughs> you know, that the Mormon <laughs> church has so many oodles of money that, uh, you know, we're, we're just, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's not been, that's not been our experience. You know, our experience is that uh, we're pretty much always constantly mm-hmm. devoting every single thing that we have to mission and stuff. Right. And so yeah. um, uh, in my congregation and, you know, it, one of the things that we did was, you know, we're really concerned about the problem of homelessness and underhousing and housing justice here in the city of Toronto. So, so 50 years ago, you know, we kind of sacrificed all kinds of stuff in order to start start building apartment buildings or actually um, taking over decrepit apartment buildings and rehabbing them so that we could house people. Oh, um, wow. And over the course of 50 years, you know, that charity has amassed enough that you know I'm I'm, I'm now the president of that charity, and we are kind of trying to break ground this year on a new facility. Um, that I'll be able to house another few hundred people or 200 people anyway, uh, yeah, that we, and, and that's, you know, like it'll be like a $60 million facility. So it's way more than, than what we'd have as a, you know, invested in church stuff, you know, and it's all mm-hmm. focused on that kind of missional stuff, you know, obviously yeah. we'll mortgage to the Hilton, mm-hmm. we'll be paying that mortgage down for the next 50 years and so forth. But in other words, we, you know, we, we want to do these things in order to do mission. That's what not, as opposed to, you know, we have a huge investment portfolio, you know. <laughs> so, so it's but, kind of but like you don't just try to uh, bus your homeless uh, people to a different uh, place where they can uh, be somebody else's problem. <laughs> we have them here in the city, you know, of course, you know, yeah. people, you know, we want to be able to have, yeah. um, there's all kinds of what, you know, where we yeah. are right here. So this mm-hmm. center place, Toronto center place, um, we're two blocks, we're right in the heart of downtown. We're two blocks from where the first pastor, I'm the um, mm-hmm. 40th, pastor of this congregation. The first one was John Taylor oh, back wow. in 1836. Um, and he, his house, the cottage meet was on the same street, two blocks from here. Uh, and so we were right oh, where it's all began as a congregation, but all around here, there are, um, there are shelters and there are, you know, there's actually the, the city's um, uh, uh, drug uh, safe 
mm-hmm. injection site is very, yeah. very nearby. You know, so we're in a place where um, we can help with that kind of ministry. Um, yeah, you're where the need is. Mm-hmm. Well done. Well, Good it's on kind you. of it's kind of like what you said, John. Um, crazy rich. It's kind of like crazy rich Asians. You know that movie? It's crazy rich Mormons. <laughs> yeah. You know the ones in Salt Lake. Yeah. You know they're kind of crazy. Now, um, mm-hmm. I read that the Community of Christ has like a $15 million operating budget. I'm not sure. That's probably close, I guess. I'm not sure. But can you discuss how Community of Christ budgeting works, including transparency and auditing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're pretty open. We publish all of the all the budgets. We do that also. You know, legally in Canada, you have to do that anyway. So so all churches do that. Even the LDS church has published, you know, uh, its stuff in Canada. But we, um, you know, we do that as a congregation. Uh, so at every single level. Right. So our um, uh, we have members who are on our audit committee. You know, we have uh, a financial officer who's a member. Everybody, you know, we, we, we prepare our own budget as a congregation. Um, it is not like it's all going into one big pool, you know, that, uh, that Salt Lake or sort of independence is controlling or something like that. It's held at the congregational level. There's also the same kind of budgeting for the regional, you know, in Canada and so forth, uh, all the way up to the World Conference. The um, uh, all donations, so like when you're giving tithing. You can specify what you want to give to, you know, so um, there are all kinds of people that uh, uh, donate to Toronto congregation, my congregation, who uh, who don't like a lot of religious and church stuff. They like the, they like the lectures that we do on the YouTube channel and they want to support that. And so they can give money in support of that or however they want it. They're, they're really interested in the mission that we do with the homelessness. So you can put your, you know, direct how your funding is. You can direct it to the congregation level, the the regional level, you can direct it to World Church, you can direct it to what you want uh, the World Church to be focusing on and so forth. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, we're pretty transparent about all that and also allow you to, you know, pick how you're donating and so forth. <laughs> yeah, I would I would want to put my, all of my money into I'm a Mormon campaign. You know, I really, no, maybe not. I really <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Now, it's, I have a, a lot of questions for you here, John. What, what do you think the Brighamite branch can learn from the Prairie Saints with regard to how to utilize the widow's mite because you know the LDS church has really been in the spotlight recently for what it's done with the widow's mite. Is there any lessons that uh, can be shared from um, the Prairie Saints to the Brighamite branch? Should, you should build a lot more temples. I think you don't have very many and you need more, maybe bigger temples and larger. Bigger. Wow. <laughs> so, so, so you're on board with uh, the direction they're going. Wow. That's surprising. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that, but uh, okay. Um, <laughs> You know, it's like such a staggering amount of money that could be uh, doing all kinds of good things. But what I would yeah. do always is like what we try to do um, with the charity we have here in Toronto, which is exercising good stewardship. So um, it, you want to you want to make it so that everything that you're doing is leveraged and that you and and it provides a certain amount of good. And so and where's tiny church? And so we have to you know we can't be the whole we can't fix the whole homeless problem you know we what we have to do is we we have a very particular niche that we work with the 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 united church of canada has their bigger program and so forth and we do our part that is you know its own little thing that we're specialized at and and we do well um and so with the scale um that the money would afford the lds church you could pick some really important problem you know whether you know, just like Bill Gates does, you know, whatever, and whether you're going to eradicate malaria for all of humanity or, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you, whatever it would be, you ha- you could you could pick something really critically important and really hit that if you wanted to. And so um, mm-hmm. so that's what I would do. And why wouldn't you want to do that? You get known for that and people would want to be part of um, part of something like that. And it's just sitting there anyway, the money and you don't I don't even know what to do with it. So more, more 
more temples, more you know, or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. You know? So, so that you've already got so many, and what, and why not, why not also be known for being the church that got rid of malaria, you know, or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever it's going to yeah. be. You know? so. Well, and, and that uh, generates more interest, as uh, you pointed out, that you, you get a a lot of views, uh, four hundred thousand views on some of your videos on YouTube. You said, uh, I am curious, John. Uh, just uh, numbers-wise, how many uh, members are there of the Community of Christ worldwide? I was I was I was going to make this be my uh, Mormon joke of the week: is that you can't get a you can't get a straight or at least a true answer out of any Mormon church about how many members they have. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in the same way that whatever there's sixteen, however many million members of the yeah. church, and the math really adds up. I'll, I'll say we similarly we have two hundred fifty thousand members, and, okay. the, and the math adds up just as well. Well <laughs> okay, very nice. Now, a couple of other things. You know, uh, has there ever been any financial scandals um, in, in like vein in the community of Christ um, that are similar to what we've seen in the last couple of weeks? Well, so there isn't anything in terms of um, of hiding the money like that. Uh, it wouldn't be nice if we had hidden a stash of, of, you know, even a couple hundred million dollars somewhere. That would be nice. I'd like to find that out. No, <laughs> we don't have anything like that. And, and so there's been quite good transparency for that. Um, I don't think so. So I'm not aware of any like a, a big scandal about a financial impropriety or anything like that. Um, okay. Now, let me ask you, when we follow that up, what, 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 what do you suppose would happen in the community of Christ if the senior leadership were complicit with two decades of investment deception? What would be the what would happen? Well, I would say that. Um, so there wasn't any deception, but, you know, the financial problem that happened in terms of uh uh, the pension plan and things like that. So in other words, underfunding in a way the pension were, um, or actually taking, you know, over overspending in terms of out of reserves for operations in the early 2000s, um, you know, which caused that deficit to happen or that debt to happen, um, wasn't well received by members, right? And so they feel like, you know, with the trust for leaders is, you know, to be doing sustainable stewardship. And so one of the results, I think, was that members shifted where donations went. And so people were more confident in, in let's say, donating to their congregational level, which they can do if they want to send it that way, than they were to World Church leaders, which is one of the reasons why it's taken by the budget, like you say, overall for the World Church, which is not the whole church, it's simply what the headquarters budget is when you're talking about that number. Oh. Uh, why that has gone down so much proportionately to the to the rest of the budgets that, that exists uh, for the other components of the church. Um, and so and so hopefully having dug out of the hole and um, maybe a reestablished trust, uh, that'll be jostled back, you know, going forward. It's amazing to me what transparency has uh, done to benefit the community of Christ uh, and how the um, the LDS church could benefit from that uh, transparency that, uh, you know, in the community of Christ, your, the funds, uh, the sacred funds that are donated, that widow's might, um, is very transparent uh, where it goes and how it's spent. Whereas with the, the LDS church, uh, they've been told, well, it goes to uh, build uh, new buildings and uh, to pay for the electricity on those buildings and et cetera, to build temples, whatnot. And, and they're just supposed to trust that. But obviously that hasn't been happening. And that's what this uh, SEC uh, fine is about. Well, and I think at a certain point, you also have to, that's just something that all churches also should be rethinking and the LDS church should be rethinking too. So how, um, you know, one of the things that's happened recently in, in the LDS tradition too is further reduction in how many hours on Sunday or whatever you know you're going to be doing to church. So any given building, you know, you go to Utah, you just are shocked by just the number of of churches there are, and they're all owned by the 
the central corporation and everything like that. And so how how much use every day is all of that space, you know, all those square foot, um, you know, how, how many hours a week is that in use? And so, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe it is being used all through the whole week and everything like that, but it is a, it is a struggle, you know, um, uh, of whether or not that is even, even if it is all going to buildings, is buildings um, an effective use of your, your tithes? You know what I mean? Is, is that, is that furthering, you know, the real mission of Christ, uh, you know, or is there, or is there some other way to be doing it? Some, at a certain point, you're doing things out of out of a habit, and because that's what the way it's always been. And unfortunately, when you don't have, you know, let's say dynamic leadership that is able to make changes that are not just kind of erratic and quirky, but mm -hmm. actually big and structural, you know, yeah, um, mm -hmm. uh, you kind of get stuck into these things. So. so impressed that the community of Christ, with its 250,000 members, has housed more homeless people than the LDS Church with 16 million. Uh, that just blows my mind. Well, I, I don't know how many homeless <clears throat> people you've housed, so I don't know. So uh, none. <laughs> I don't, I, that's not a function that the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is a part of, really. I don't. Okay. I can it, it isn't, and and they've said as much. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's why I wanted to ask you, John, you know, regarding Joseph Smith's uh, religion and legacy, we have the church headquarters in Salt Lake City. We have the church headquartered in Independence, Missouri. How did these religions become so vastly different in how they approach mission, secrecy, finances and transparency? Because we're both coming out of the same tradition. So how did they become just their, their polar opposites? Well, my understanding of the, um, the LDS uh, kind of more secrecy development is so a lot of times what happens in the LDS tradition is you you kind of look back and you say every single thing that's different from our church in community of Christ it means the community of Christ has changed you know and this and we're doing things the way they've always been but actually the LDS church is a living tradition which does change over time you know and so for example LDS practice of having a bishop be the leader of a ward as it's called this is a Utah development you know and mm -hmm. so this is not um, what the early church was like early churches like uh, you know, the branch president is also usually called a pastor. So John Taylor, you know, who went on to be a Brighamite president and so forth, he was pastor of this congregation when he was here. Um, and so in that same sense, um, the transparency, I, my understanding is that it happened in the 1960s. Um, the LDS Church had been, um, let's say, operated way more vernacularly, which is to say people who were just not, you know, they were businessmen, but not like maybe business school businessmen and so forth. And, and so the, the, the church was in financial on the, on the balance books looked like it was not doing well. Um, this is this Wilkinson era, as it were, of like buying lots and lots of buildings. And if you build them, they will come. It was a, it was a strategy that, that worked and actually fueled a lot of growth in the 1960s and the cultural revolution. And most specifically the counter um, to the counterculture, the counter counterculture. So people who um, were opposed to, uh, let's say liberalization of the crazy 60s flocked into the LDS church at that time in the United States. Um, so, but things looked really bad. And so the balance sheets were looking like uh, the church was going bankrupt and things like that in the LDS church in the 1960s. And so they stopped reporting everything. <laughs> but actually, um, but actually it wasn't really going that bad. There was huge amounts of assets. There was all kinds of potential. They, they, they called in some big, um, you know, New York bankers, they, they told them how to restructure everything and put things into investment accounts and everything like that. And, and you know, all these decades later, you know, the hundred billion dollars or whatever, you know, so, so, yeah. so it was not, it was not a problem, but they, but they just, once they went to secrecy, they just never went back. And so, and that's just a development in the LDS church because of a time period when the books weren't looking good. So they stopped showing them to people. Yeah. And I also think that everything really relates back to polygamy as well. 
when you have when you when you when when you embrace polygamy, which by its nature of being against the law, it needs to be very secretive. It really breeds a, a secretive environment, not just in polygamy, but in other things. And also the embracing of the um, the current, you know, the, uh, the the temple rituals. The temple rituals are shrouded in secrecy and there's oaths to protect those. And because the RLDS tradition didn't participate in the polygamy, didn't participate in the temple rituals in the same way, those those those, those the, the seeds of secrecy were never really, um, you know, they, they just never really took hold. That's just insight, yes. Yeah, uh, I've got a lot of questions for you. Uh, you know, I don't know if we're going to get to all of them because I don't want to hold you too long. But um, let me ask you this next question. The LDS Church, it owns Bonneville Communications, which has broadcasting journalistic capabilities. You know, the, the church owns the Church News, the Deseret News, KSL, uh, thousands of radio affiliates uh, across the nation. Now, does the, does the community of Christ generate news in a similar manner? You know, as a propaganda, you know, because it's really the church's. The church's uh, you know, journalistic arm is really a propaganda arm of the church. It does not report negative or unflattering news. Does the yeah. community of Christ do that in a similar way? And also a two-parter, if I wanted to follow news pertaining to the community of Christ, what resources would you recommend? Yeah, um, so so it's it's complicated. But yeah, I would say that in, in some points there's some similarities. So, so the church um, grew out of the same source. And the church was a, uh, in the early years, was a uh, very much a, a communications pioneer. It was dependent on the fact that there were newspapers. So one of the very first things that the church did after it was organized was that it opened the evening and the morning star in Independence, Missouri, um, in 1831 or whatever it was, 1830, 1831. And, um, uh, and that was the furthest west um, newspaper at the time, right? And so it was on the American frontier. Uh, and so that was that was central to you know that kind of communication was central to what the church was, and so and so for the moment when um, the Brighamite church on Brigham Young, um, you know when they abandon Nauvoo and are on this middle of this trek, uh, and and their rivals like James Strang uh, at his headquarters in Wisconsin. James Strang for a time is the only, you know, like one of the only, you know, LDS or church organizations or headquarters that actually has a newspaper because while while they're in trekking, you know, I guess there's a newspaper maybe in, in England or something like that, but the LDS church doesn't have a local newspaper and it was a problem communications wise. And so in the same way, the reorganization since 1860 has had um, our, our periodical, uh, the Herald, we call it. It used to be originally called the true Latter-day Saints Herald as opposed to you know, which non-true <laughs> yeah. right? you can tell it began as a polemic, right? And so, and so uh, that's the longest I think continuously running, you know, Latter-day Saint publication. It continues to be um, essential to community Christ uh, communications. So that has gone through all kinds of different evolution, though, over the course of over its time. So at a certain point, it was kind of way more of an open forum where RLDS members debated each other all the time. So it was always um, edited by the like Joseph III or whatever, it's always it's under the under the editorial control of the First Presidency, but there was a lot of room for oppositional views. That kind of got pared down in the 1960s when debates got really heated, you know. And so what I would say now is the Herald is very much kind of a um, international headquarters uh, propaganda, you're calling it, right? So in other words, it's, it's re representing the perspective of what headquarters wants to say and not not as much the other views and that kind of a thing. Yeah, um, kind, of, of, kind of like a newsletter. 
per se. It's more but, like an yeah, like in-house periodical mag yeah. corporate magazine. In other words, yeah, okay, that, that makes this sense. Is yeah. what, and so then in the 80s, you know, corporate communications, you know, the, what communications is, that kind of took hold, that kind of communications model. And that, and you know, you don't want to have any bad press and you want to have a communications team and there's, mm -hmm. and, 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 and community crisis is a lot like that. And so it, it definitely absorbed all of those kinds of like lessons of business and that kind of thing. Not doing a great job at it, but compared to it, because we're such a smaller organization compared to the LDS Church, but doing that kind of a thing. Um, we were innovators and pioneers very early on. So um, in terms of other communications, we had a, a radio station, I think the first church-owned radio station in the United States called KLDS. Um, and I think that had a significant impact on the Kansas City market. You go to Kansas City today and half the radio stations are owned by churches. And I think that they all, it's like a bunch of evangelicals who bought radio stations to counter this, you know, renegade Mormon radio station that they were very offended by, presumably. So that was, a, you know, very early on. Um, but no, we don't have anything that is like Bonneville Communications that, that's producing this level of, of anything. And, and unfortunately, I would say, and so we did have another arm that was the, the, the publications arm, so like the Deseret Book kind of thing. And, and Community of Christ people throughout the 20th century just produced a crazy number of books and bought a crazy number of books comparative uh, to the num their numbers, you know, and so that was definitely uh, central to the culture. Um, but that's wound down a lot in the 21st century. And so and so now um, I would say that um, overall we have a lot less uh, going for us in terms of communication. So I don't think the headquarters has adapted well to the new um, to the new paradigm. They have their own YouTube channels like that. I'll just say, you know, as a, my congregations. Um, YouTube channel actually has 10 times the subscribers as the headquarters and also 10 times the views. <laughs> so, uh, and so it is kind of, so we're sort of in a place where the church needs to work on that more, or at least headquarters needs to work on that more, I'd say. Okay. Now I have another uh, follow-up with that that goes um, with, with what we were talking about earlier. What do you suppose that the community of Christ would do with the approximately $150 billion currently being invested in Enzyme Peak. That's part one. What do you think the church would do with it? And number two, if you were the head of Community of Christ, what would you, and you had access to that fund, what would you personally do with it? I mean, like I, I even kind of mentioned it, is it what she has to say? We, we would want to do as a discernment process as a church, you know, what, you know, what is, what is the way we could make uh, the most effective use of, of uh, missional funds like that sustainably? So how could we have the, how could we leverage that to have the biggest positive impact planet wide? <laughs> Um, and it would happen in a way that is very, very progressive. So in other words, because we would be looking at a thing where there's all kinds of other charities and even churches like the Catholic Church, which are really big, but can't do extremely progressive things because they have a bigger base. And so we would so we come up with something like that. It, it's wow. amazing to me how collaborative you are with your answers, because notice the way that I phrased it is a very um, is a very Brighamite branch. What would you do with it? Because it's yeah. always from the top down. You you didn't even engage with that because the community of Christ, it's a community. You said we would need mm -hmm. to come together to make these decisions. Yeah. So well, if just, I was the president, even if I was the president of the church, it wouldn't be my decision to do with it. Right. right. Be, yeah. be, what, what is the church? Be, what is it, how is God calling the church right. to, yeah. to make the world a better place? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That you guys really live up to your name, the community. Right. Yeah. yeah, I'm starting to get that. Now, a lot of uh, Mormons in uh, Utah are calling for the Common Council of the Church um, for these, uh, this deception which took place. And I just wanted to ask you, has the community of Christ ever used the Common Council of the Church ever since Sidney Rigdon was excommunicated back in 18, I think it was 1840, end of 1844, has it ever been used in the community of Christ? N no. <laughs> so I don't think so. So we... Um... So we continue to have uh, what, what I would call a, uh, at the time period in the 
uh, in Nauvoo, which would have been called the presiding high council or the standing high council of the church. And that continues to be, a, a, let's say, a body that is deals with kind of legal stuff. Um, we so so we, we don't actually do a lot of excommunicating. Um, there, that's not I actually, you know, as a pastor, so I've been pastor for nine years of this congregation, and um, I had to ask my field apostle a couple times if we, so if we were going to have a excommunication, how would we do that? <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty theoretical um, for, from, from my perspective. Um, essentially, there the main kind of disciplining that happens would be, um, so you don't have to be in priesthood and community of Christ. So, so there's an automatic priesthood for men in, in the LDS church and community of Christ um, involves like a lot more, it's a long process. It involves taking courses and getting certifications and things like that, like youth worker training and all the other kinds of things. Uh, and so there, so a person could be relieved, you know, as a disciplinary thing, a person could be relieved of priesthood status. Um, but to be actually excommunicated would, I don't know, it would be, it would, it would be a, you know, they'd have to have done something. I don't know what, but, you know, so, um, I mean, in the, there was, there was a schism, you know, in the, in the 80s. And so there was a lot more, there was a lot more of that going on when there was a big fight over, uh, you know, women's ordination, that kind of a thing. But in the, in the modern church or the contemporary church now, it is, it's a, it's more theoretical kind of thing. All right. Hey, thank you so much, John, for uh, sharing everything with us. And uh, this has just been so fascinating for, for me, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate you as well. Okay, so uh, we're going over to uh, thechurchnews.com, where Scott Taylor has written an article under Living Faith, and it's titled, Why Dying Testimonies is Just One Reason to Avoid Missionary Slang. Um, so I, I'm sure that uh, anybody that's uh, served as a full-time missionary for the church uh, has uh, – been through several conferences or, uh, you know, zone, yeah, zone conferences and mission meetings where they've been told, hey, you know, knock it off with the slang and stop <laughs> saying certain things. Don't refer to the mission president as prez. Uh, that kind of, seems to be kind of the go-to, right? <laughs> so it's funny. He talked about dying testimonies. Now, it took me a while. I had to read this article two times before I realized what a dying testimony is. A dying testimony in the LDS tradition is the last testimony that a missionary gives before he leaves the mission field and then goes back home. That's called oh. a dying. That's a dying testimony. I wasn't aware mm -hmm. of that one. That wasn't back in my day. We didn't have dying testimonies, okay? But it, it talks a lot about the slang. We shouldn't use those kind of slang words. We shouldn't call anybody greenies anymore. We can't. Mm -hmm. And also, this was one that President Nelson brought forward. He said we don't call people investigators anymore. They're now called friends. Okay, I'm having mm -hmm. a hard time. Um, I guess I'm just old school, yeah. but I'm having a hard time <laughs> with uh, some of these. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time with some of this stuff. That's all. That's yeah. all I'm saying. You know what I mean? Oh, that, that's a little creepy to just refer to people there um, looking into the church and that are meeting with missionaries to refer to them as friends. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. invest. I, I, but but again, this is just a more evolution of the of uh, the language and the culture. Uh, because yeah. investigators is uh, that was uh, the official term for uh, decades. Uh, yeah, it was. Now, if you look at the reception, because they, they the church news posts it not only on the church's website, but they also put it out on their tw official Twitter feed, and that's where you get a lot of the reactions here. And there's a lot of uh, people are very very critical on this one. I pulled out a few comments here, and it said, uh, "Dear Church News, there are much much bigger issues happening in the mission field than ne that need to be addressed than using the word greenie." And another thing, uh, another comment here is. Uh, Quote, things to avoid. Number one, absconding $32 billion, end quote. So you, yeah. this SEC thing is getting, people are going to be using that to beat the church up for years. And another one here, I got a couple of other ones here. Quote, uh, I read the article, but I still don't understand what is meant by dying testimony, end quote. I had to read the article twice to figure that uh -huh. out. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and this this is I also find this would be very ironic because the last week we covered in our last episode that we're on the heels where a missionary in Colombia was seriously stabbed and in a coma and um, almost almost had to have a, a limb amputated. And also the same week we had four sister missionaries um, in South America as well, I believe, uh, who were assaulted and at least one of them raped. OK, but. The church's response isn't, um, hey, we're going to have different protocols or, hey, we're going to do we're going to stand down to different safety measures. We're going to increase something. Instead, the article's point here is that we are to avoid missionary slang. And uh, I just yeah. find that to be uh, very ironic. I'll well, just put it that tone way. deaf, isn't it? That, yeah. With all that's going on, the big problem that the that the church feels the need to address in their uh, published uh, newspaper is the you know language that missionaries are using to refer to when they're going right. home and when they're new in the mission field. Right. Yeah, <laughs> this on the heels from the SEC as well. So we got that, you know, yeah. it's you know, it's just, I think the timing on this is pretty poor. Now, uh, real quick, our next couple of articles here, we only have two last articles to get through. And this is an interesting article here that was uh, published by our favorite researcher here, Ryan Burge. And Ryan Burge put out a chart where uh, in Mormon land, which is a comparison of educational attainment in the U.S. broken down by religion and denomination. So he's talking about Reformed Jews, conservative Jews, atheists, Episcopalians, agnostic, Orthodox, Buddhists. He ranks all of them and the educational level. Now, John, unfortunately, the community of Christ it didn't, uh, didn't rise to the level on this particular one. But Mormons in general, I was surprised about this. Uh, Al, where do Mormons rank as far as educational level when ranked with all other religions, including atheists and agnostics, at least in the United States? Where I know this isn't in Canada, John, but it is in the United States. Where are Mormons ranking here, Al? Uh, smack dab in the middle. They're they're yeah. not high. They're not low. They're they're not dumb. They're not smart. <laughs> yeah, they're surprised. They're surprisingly average. Yeah. Now, I, and there's a stereotype that says you know that Mormons are really really well educated. That they're smart. And and I think that there's a lot to be saying for that. But the, there's an issue here. The reason that Mormons don't rank higher is because a lot of uh, women in the church. They are, you know, they're set. To, they they stay at home. The messaging is stay at home. Um, you're you're supposed to raise kids. You don't need to have an education. Now I know that you know it's not as bad as it once was, but because uh, you know, female uh, women empowerment in the church is so low that you know they, they don't attain. Uh, they don't have ordained office. They they don't lead in in the church in any meaningful way. And they are a lot of them are expected to. You know, a lot of women are taught that you're supposed to stay at home and raise children. That means that a lot of Mormon women don't have a high educational level because they have children early. And uh, or, and often and they don't finish that educational level. Uh, and I think that's a reason that Mormons are very, very smack dab in the middle. Any thoughts on this uh, article here, uh, John? Yeah. So obviously we come out of the same tradition in the reorganization as in the LDS church. And um, and, and and we've also you know kept that that focus. And so, for example, you know, from where Joseph Smith was, he as a you know had a vernacular education and so forth, not as uneducated as he sometimes portrayed. But anyway, as a person who uh, was interested in learning, but didn't have you know, and, and continued to be involved in kind of lifelong learning as he was trying to do that. From kind of those kind of aspirational levels, his grandson, the third prophet of Community of Christ, Frederick Madison Smith, got a PhD in sociology in like 19. 19- Oh, five or something like that. So in other words, it was already very early on, very rare to PhDs back then, uh, that that kind of focus. Uh, and he was the first, also the first undergraduate to get a degree from Community Christ's University, Graceland University in, um, and back then at college, but anyway, in, in, in Iowa, in Lamoni, Iowa. And, um, and I guess I would say is that, you know, one of our mission initiatives as a church, so we have like a five-fold mission of the church, and one of those is develop disciples to serve. So continually learning and growing is something we're all supposed to be doing at all times. And I know from my own experience, I got in my congregation, which is pretty, not that, not that huge, but anyway, in terms of official members, there's the official member, there's a lot of 
lots of people have graduate degrees and even PhDs and things like that. So I know that there is a big focus on on ongoing education um, in our side anyway, and for women too. It, it appears, John, that you're flexing on us with your Canadian uh, your Canadian intelligence and bona fides up there versus us uh, pedestrian uh, Americans. Am I getting the gist of that? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it appears, this is my summary here, the glory of God is intelligence, but uh, Latter-day Saints are pathetically average when it comes to uh, educational levels. Okay, mm. now our uh, last article here, which I, I just found this today, and I, this is really amazing to me. This is yeah. absolutely incredible here. So, so this is an article here which was dropped on LDSliving.com. This was by Morgan Pearson, March 9, 2023. Why an Anglican priest now lives the word of wisdom and feels it a privilege to pay tithing. So, um, yeah, you heard that right. So Reverend Andrew Teal has a deep love and admiration for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He recently gave an astounding Brigham Young University address in 2021. He's attended General Conference and he's currently working in collaboration with BYU to create a center of faith and reconciliation. So Teal here, he is taking on the most difficult aspects of Mormon culture and teachings just for fun. He's not doing it. He said he's not getting baptized. He's just doing the tough parts of Mormonism just for fun. Now, yeah. uh, regarding the word of wisdom, Al, here's what he um, can you read that section about what he said about living the word of wisdom? Yeah. OK, so he says, quote, I thought I want to keep the word of wisdom because these promises actually signify something. Now, how do you feel about um, someone who's not a member of the church, Al, living the word of wisdom just for the spiritual aspects of it? What do you think? I've got a big problem with this quote. I don't think he understands the word of wisdom at all. I think he's looking at this as a promise that we make to the Lord that we're going to abstain from certain uh, things in our diet and we're not going to drink certain things or partake of certain substances. But that's not uh, how it's written in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's well, it's given as kind of a uh, advice that you should follow, and if you do follow it, there's a you, you are you're given a promise that uh, you know you'll have uh, good health and uh, long life, etc. But yeah, there's uh, a pro there's a promise at the end. It says all saints who keep and do these sayings will um, yeah. you know have health in the navel, marrow in the bones, and mm -hmm. will walk and not be weary, and shall uh, run and not faint. Yeah, there's yeah. promises. It's a promise. Yeah, so, so so there's a promise that's coming that way if you uh, if you do it. But I, I don't know that it's is this a promise that you'll that we make or, or a promise that's given to us in, in return uh, if we'll do these things. I, I'm, I'm a little confused by that. I would think by what he's saying, he's, he's taking this as a divine promise, right? I mean, wouldn't that, I would imagine, but like you point out, it's, there's a big divergence between the word of wisdom as written in its text and contemporary LDS practice, which, you know, involves very true caffeinated pop or whatever. Yeah. Part of the word of wisdom, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of folks uh, here in, mm -hmm. in community Christ in Canada talk about, because there's a, a bunch of folks who are on uh, promoting this plant-based diet. And I don't uh -huh. know how many uh, Mormons don't eat meat in the wintertime or whatever, you know, whatever it says in the, you know, the word of wisdom in mm -hmm. that way, you know, yeah, we only take it in our church as by way of, you know, not by way of commandment or constraint. Here's a word of wisdom mm -hmm. and, our, and we, everyone's free to interpret it and, you know, as they, mm -hmm. as they like, therefore. So. Yeah, eat, eat meat sparingly only in times of famine, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wonder if uh, uh, Reverend Andrew Teal is still eating fruit out of season, which is also uh, the word of wisdom takes a dim view of as well. So <laughs> it's amazing. Well, you're also supposed to make your own communion wine, and I wonder if he does that. 
(laughs) I've heard of Capitaria Mormonism, but I haven't heard of Capitaria Anglicanism. I'm not that familiar with it. I don't know that much about it. But it's not just the word of wisdom, which is a real stumbling block for a lot of people. You know, Mormons get a lot of grief for the word of wisdom, especially the coffee, the uh, prohibition, the modern church's interpretation of the prohibition against coffee. But it's not just the word of wisdom, okay? Um, It's he's paying tithing, okay? He's paying tithing to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I've got this quote here, Al, and I just find this to be absolutely amazing, especially on the heels of what we found out about what happens with the tithing in the last couple of weeks. It wasn't quite the rosy picture that we were all hoping for, but that doesn't seem to bother Andrew Teal. Do you have that uh, next section about um, why he's paying tithing to the church? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I can't wait to read this. Okay, so the quote says, This sounds very much like propaganda, as if I've been paid to say this by the Twelve, But to be able to tithe, to be able for me as a non-member of the church to say, I want to contribute to the mission and ministry of the church in the world because I trust this community. I trust it to be able to act on my behalf, to give back to God, and to give to his children what they need in terms of temples, in terms of missionaries, in terms of education, whatever. I think that's a tremendous honor to be allowed to be a part of that, Teal said. Okay, Al, what is your reaction to um, him paying tithing? My goodness. Who's he? Uh, okay, the, it's very evident to me. So the way that uh, Reverend Teal got introduced to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was through a senior couple missionary, um, Matthew Holland, who is the son of Jeffrey R. Holland yeah. and the city, current city apostle. Um, Matthew Holland was a senior missionary, uh, former president of uh, University of Utah, or sorry, uh, the UVU, Utah right, Valley. UVU, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. And uh, he um, was serving as a senior couple missionary, knocked on this uh, reverend's door uh, in Oxford University, England, and uh, said, hey, you know, let's be friends. And so they got to know each other's uh, religions a little bit. And then uh, uh, Matthew said, oh, you really need to meet my dad. Uh, so he introduced him to Jeffrey R. Holland. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they've become uh, good friends. And yeah, uh, he's definitely been talking to Jeffrey R. Holland uh, <laughs> and getting a lot of great advice about, yeah, that if you give your money to the church, this is what we're going to do with it. And this mm-hmm. is how these things uh, help the world. Because he's so proud to uh, contribute to temples. Does he have any idea what goes on inside the temples? Uh, how could he? Um, not sure. Yeah. No, no. Um, I, I, John, how do you feel about uh, uh, Reverend Andrew Teal playing paying tithing to the church? Well, I unfortunately don't, I oppose paying tithing to the LDS church because the LDS church uh, engages in political activity uh, trying to uh, suppress human rights around the world, you know, so it is a very effective and uh, persistent uh, political enemy of civil and human rights in the United States and abroad and so forth. And so I think that people should uh, give their money to other charities that are actually doing charitable work and, and avoid and avoid that kind of a those kind of payments so i don't know man i have no idea what uh, reverence he may well be you know opposed to lgbt and other human rights himself so it might well be you know no, no big deal to him i don't know well right. i'll tell you john just based off of our conversation with you today i would much rather uh go and uh, grab reverend teal and point him towards the community of christ and say uh, pay your tithing to these people and you'll see the uh, good that can be done with your money in the world rather than uh, throwing it to a multi-billion dollar corporation that's uh, being fined by the SEC for a lack of compliance. 
Yeah, and by the way, who is going to be the first person to tell Reverend Teal about Enzyme Peak? You know what I mean? I refuse <laughs> to do it. It's not going to be me. I'm not going to spoil. I don't want to spoil his beautiful fantasy. You know what I mean? That's, I, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to fall on that sword. I just this is one heck of an article. I've never heard of anything like this. Are there yeah. any Community of Christ members who pay uh, uh, tithing to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints that you've ever heard of, John? Well. So we believe in dual citizenship, so you can be a member of Community of Christ in the LDS Church. So yes, so there are people who, I mean, don't they don't you can't tell the LDS Church that, <laughs> you know, because they don't believe in dual citizenship. Right. We're totally fine with with dual citizenship. And so yeah, there are members who are members of both churches who pay tithing to the LDS Church in some cases. So that's the personal decision. Huh. That's fine. Okay. Uh, well, good, good, good on them. Now we have some huge shows and guests coming up here. We have the uh, uh, world premiere of Sophronia, our general authority Patreon supporter and special guest host next week. We have Jonathan Streeter from Thoughts and Things and Stuff later this month, and we have Jane Christie from 21st Century Saints, who's on deck. Now, John, um, what projects are you currently working on, and how can people get in touch with you? So there's a couple things. So like I say, I'm actually uh, leading the uh, Community Christ's largest online global ministry, which is online every every Sunday at noon Eastern, 10 a.m. Mountain. Uh, you can go you can go to our website to get linked up to it. Our we are, our website is centerplace.ca. So Canada is .ca, but anyway, center spelled the Canadian way, so with yeah. R-E at the end. <laughs> yeah, they are before the. <laughs> they are before the E at the end of that. And uh, and so we invite you to come and see what a, a very progressive, non-credal uh, church where we don't um, focus on or even, let's say, believe in historicity of, of uh, the scripture stories and things like that, but instead are looking for a living tradition and how we can help help the world today, but make everything more Zion-like if we can. And my other major project is every Tuesday night at 7 Eastern, these are recorded so you can watch anytime, but 7 Eastern, uh, 5 Mountain on Tuesdays, I will give a lecture on some topic related to history, theology, or philosophy. And so those uh, are on a wide variety of topics, including restoration, tradition stuff. Uh, and so I talk about Book of Mormon authorship or history of community crisis, succession crisis, but I also talk about uh, biblical studies. Um, I did recently did one on biblical matriarchs, why are, why are the matriarchs uh, in the Genesis story and so forth always uh, beating out uh, the patriarchs who seem like dunderheads, even though it's like a, um, a very patriarchal society that's described, that kind of a thing. So if you're interested in any of these kind of topics, you can find us that way. And so through our YouTube channel and also our Center Place website. Yeah, we are going to link to your YouTube channel in the show notes. So uh, to our listeners out there, if you would like, if you're curious about this video that has 400,000 views on YouTube, uh, follow the link on YouTube or uh, to the YouTube channel in our show notes, and uh, you can go take a look and see what it's all about. So thank you again, John. It's been a real treasure to have you here and a real treat, especially for our number 50 episode. This was uh, the perfect episode uh, to mark number 50 for us. So thank you again for, for joining us today. Well, you're very welcome. It was a delight to be here, and I've really enjoyed this conversation, and thanks so much to your listeners. Yep, and uh, yeah, thanks again, Dives. Uh, we uh, had a great time with you to, uh, today as well. Well, I give a shout-out to Weird Alma for this episode and every episode's music. Uh, thanks so much for ruminating with us on the great and spacious beehive, and remember, remember, no one hallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a being with no moral constraints. 
My number one goal is to hurt the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.